Hey y'all, welcome back to Well, That's a Problem, a social justice podcast on everyday issues. I'm your host, Abby Naraki, and today I'm joined by one of my bestest friends, Carissa Conrad. She's a PhD student in communication here at Purdue, and she studies sports medicine from a social science perspective. She focuses on athlete bodies and health from a communications perspective. Just in time for football season, Carissa's here talking about the consequences of sports culture for how we think about our bodies. And as a former college athlete herself, as well as an expert in sports medicine communication, she is uniquely qualified to bring us her excellent commentary on how we talk to and about athletes in ways that directly impact their bodies and their health. In our talk, we're able to really underline how sports culture and communication about athlete bodies is in fact a huge problem. But you probably assumed that, given the name of my podcast. In addition to her scholarly contributions, Carissa is big into teaching. So she is really an excellent person to have on this podcast because she cares a lot about having these more informal conversations where we're able to talk about how theories and things that happen in the scholarly world directly impact our everyday lives and how we think about sports and things like that. She also teaches yoga and cycling here at Purdue. So if you're interested in either of those things, I highly recommend checking out her classes. She is a really excellent instructor. Not only that, but like myself is a huge fan of Grey's Anatomy. So we end up spending a lot of time in the last section of the podcast called That's Rad talking about our love of Grey's. And she's a huge fan of cats. In particular, shout out to my cats, Jack and Frankenstein, who she loves. Finally, shout out to my BFF, Eric, who totally had my back and helped me vamp up my audio stuff so that it sounds even more legit. I'm sure y'all can hear the difference. So this intro is but a sample of the glorious audio quality to come and seriously would not have been possible without his contribution. And now here's the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Well, That's a Problem. Today I'm here with Carissa. Hi, Carissa. Hi, Abby. I'm so excited to have you here today. I'm excited to be here. I'm a little nervous. Uh, I'm really self-conscious of my podcast voice, so uh, you can just like edit that in post, right? Yeah, I can make you sound just like Leonardo DiCaprio oh, or Adele. I mean, like, I was definitely here. going for Leo, so. Okay, perfect. I yeah. figured that's why I brought him up Right, first. you yeah. know me. Mm-hmm. I do. And can you tell everyone when we became friends? Sure. Okay. So I was in an ethnography class offered by the anthropology department here at Purdue. And on the first day, kind of standard procedure, everyone's sharing their interests, their background, where they're coming from. And, you know, everyone kind of hates that part of the first day. So, you know, people are kind of like not interested or not paying attention. So I'm giving my spiel or whatever. And I look up and Abby is looking at me intently and smiling and nodding. And I was like, that is the type of nonverbal affirmation that I need in a friend. And I was like, immediately like, oh, we're best friends now. So creepily, I um, didn't speak to her really until like a couple weeks later. And I added her on Facebook during class. Yes, (laughs) I remember this. And then like, after class, Abby goes, did you add me on Facebook? And I was so I, like, embarrassed. I you out I in front like, of people. I was like, yeah, that was me. I'm so sorry. Because <laughs> the reason I asked was I was like, I just wanted to make sure this was you. Yeah. Uh-huh. This was like intentional. Because yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, does she really want to be friends? Like, yeah. that's so cool. Because yeah. I remember like, I would look at you like in class and you would say things. And I was just like, yes, yes, uh-huh. yes. Everything yeah. about you. Yes. I just felt so affirmed. And I was like, I know that we would be best friends. And so here we are now. We are deep into our friendship. Very true. And we go to trivia together. Um, and let me rephrase that. We dominate trivia together. Oh, good. And by rephrase. that, I mean, Abby carries the team and I'm there to non-verbally affirm her. Oh, so that's, that's our full circle, how we met story. <laughs> you put the team on your back so many weeks. You know, the trivia. only knowledge base that I bring to trivia is my unhealthy knowledge of top 40 hits from like 2008. And honestly, I share that same musical interest. <laughs> so that's where we are the same again. Yeah, really, I feel like it's both of us getting out of the way for Kelsey to do the real work. I mean, let's be honest, Kelsey carries the team. She comes out of nowhere, y'all. And she's just like, 
Oh, I know this obscure TV reference from like 1998. I don't know how she knows all of the things that she knows, but she is literally the smartest person I've ever met. No. I mean, you too, but. Right. I mean, like, we're all <laughs> smart, but like Kelsey right. on another level when right. it comes yeah. to trivia knowledge. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm glad we got that out of the mm-hmm. way. <laughs> Everyone knows that we're friends and it's great. <laughs> so there's a particular story that brings you here today. Yes, there is you let us know what's on your mind? Sure. Yeah. So I really love the opportunity to tell this story because I've told this story a lot to people from home. So my family knows this story. My friends from home know this story. But something that I don't get to talk a lot about is how this story has brought me to where I am. So I haven't always been interested in grad school. So I haven't always seen myself Being in the academy, grad school wasn't really in the plan, especially even as an undergrad student. I wanted to be an artist. You know, I wanted to be a graphic designer. I wanted to be a photographer. When I was really little, I thought that I could be a cat. So I wanted to be a cat. Yes. And And you still could be. I just want to affirm that. Thank you. Yeah. Shape-shifting hasn't worked out for me yet. Um, That's because your Hogwarts letter got lost. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. So as an undergrad, I was kind of like, you know, I don't really know where I want to go, but I've always been an athlete. So I thought, okay, well, that's something that I could study for a few years as a master's student and then kind of see where that could take me. So when I entered the scene in 2015 as a master's student, you know, I started exploring the area of sports communication primarily because of this story that I'm about to share. And that is as a student athlete in high school, I remember so vividly something that my coach said to me one time. And, you know, we were in the middle of a tough game. I don't remember, you know, the details, but I do remember so clearly him saying the words, your body is expendable. We will replace you. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. And I mean, coming from kind of this culture of sports, that didn't seem really that strange until I thought about it for literally two seconds. Right. right. And yeah, I was really appalled by that. I was really surprised that even in high school, you know, we're not elite athletes. We're having fun. or Like your children. Right, right. Your I'm, literal children. I'm 17 years old and my body is expendable. And what does that mean, right? Mm-hmm. So that always stuck with me. And other things that, you know, I would hear people say things like, with reference to fouling during a game, mm. my coach once said, if they're not calling it, why aren't we doing it? Ah, a good rule of thumb for life. Right. So as if the legality or illegality of physical harm to another person should dictate whether or not we cause physical harm to that person. Right. right? If I can get away with kicking this person and punching them, then I should kick and punch Or more extensively causing some sort of traumatic brain injury or something Mm. like that, right? Yeah. So That definitely has implications. Yeah. Oh, really? I had no idea. Right. Yeah. If only someone was studying something. Right, like that. right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the media should really pick that up. Right. Um, but yeah, so those those are the types of things that really stuck with me as I began studying sports communication and specifically interpersonal communication. So how we talk to each other, how people in power talk to people in lesser positions of power and those types of things. So that's what brought me here today. You know, my personal and professional interests have left the world of sport and come back to the world of sport for various reasons, but I really feel passionately about it. And it's something that I think we can learn more about as researchers, but also hopefully we can share what we learn through our research with the larger athletic community. And there are people who are certainly doing that, but I think that there are ways that we can continue to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I really appreciate you being willing to stand in that space and say, I'll do it. Like I'll do the research. Right. Right. And I'll, I'll talk to the people about how to be better at valuing human bodies. Right. Right. And that seems like something that's so obvious that we shouldn't cause physical harm to another person. Mm -hmm. Right. And I don't even know if anyone in the sports world would 
really use that language, right? That we're causing physical harm to right. other bodies, but that's the reality of it. Yeah. Well, um, we kind of step outside that, right? And we say, oh, no, 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 it's just we're fouling or right. we, you know, we call it something else right. in the sports arena to right. make it seem more of it's just a game or it's right. just all these things. But right. then at the same time, it's not, right? Because so you're getting told a as a high school student, mm-hmm. which like, okay, y'all tap back into your high school self. Is there anyone more insecure or self-conscious about their body than a middle school or high school student getting told your body is completely expendable? Right. So the worthlessness that you might feel on the inside, I'm validating that as a a coach (laughs) and I will replace you. Right. And that's the part that really stuck with me. It's not only that your body is expendable, it's that you're just a cog in the machine. Right. And I want to be really clear I'm a sports fan. I was a student athlete in college. I love sports. I don't always love the culture of sports. And I think it's important for us to problematize kind of things that we take for granted about Mm -hmm. sports culture, but also recognize how entrenched sports culture is in American culture. So people, even even people who aren't a part of the sport world Mm -hmm. are influenced by it and impacted by it. Yeah. And I think that that's important is being able to see these things as able to be separated, we can separate a love of sport from the culture that comes with sport. And we can see a connection between the world of sport and the culture of sport in other places in our lives. And I think that that connection right there is really powerful for me. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's really easy for us to, as PhD students fall into academic jargon and research talk. But I think that this is a topic in particular that one of the reasons why I'm drawn to it is because we see it everywhere, right? Oh, we live this Mm -hmm. every day. So I think it's really important that we can talk about it. So thank you for giving me a platform to do that. Of course. Love talking about everyday issues here at Well, That's a Problem. Yeah, well, we have a lot of problems to talk about today. Oh, yes. (laughs) Let's get to it. So kind of give us a sense of what other information do we really need to have access to to really understand the scope of this problem mm-hmm. or the way that it works and some of those other issues that you have alluded to? Yeah, sure. So again, my expertise is coming from the discipline of communication. So that's where my knowledge base is. That's certainly not the only knowledge base. Um, and it's important, I think, too, to recognize that a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about are rooted in lived experience. So I do have a little bit of lived experience in the world of sport, but I have a different experience than other people might. So I think that's important to start with. But in terms of sports communication, there is a field, a subfield of the discipline that is dedicated to sports communication. Sweet. So we're done here. We've already got... Yeah, well, time to pack up. Right. (laughs) Thanks for joining, y'all. Well, what's really interesting is that most of the sports communication research is actually on sports media and sports PR. And it's not that those are not particularly important or interesting because they are. It just isn't exactly what I do. Okay. So So, how is what you do different? Unfortunately, there isn't a lot of health-based research on sport in the field of communication, which seems strange, right? And there's a little bit more recently, but traditionally, it's just sports media and sports PR. So I have had to kind of step outside of the field of communication to get the lay of the land. Generally, when we talk about health in terms of sport, we look at disciplines like sports medicine and exercise physiology and other similar disciplines. But I think that it's important to recognize that those disciplines are rooted in a tradition that is very much based on kind of physical sciences. So in a modernist tradition, we're thinking things like the scientific method and quantifying things. Mm -hmm. And when you say modernist tradition, mm -hmm. what what do you mean by that? Yeah, all I mean is that we are out there searching for the truth. We're looking around. There is a truth out there somewhere. And it's objective. Yes. And we are going to, as researchers, use our objective brains and objective instruments to go out and find it. Okay. Yeah. And so you're, um, the research on sports health and things like that are drawing on those ideas as a foundation for all of the other research that they're doing. Absolutely. Yes. So what's interesting about it is that it ignores some important things about what it means to be a human being, right? Oh, so it turns out that we're not just like sacks of skin and organs walking around. 
Did you know that? Uh, no, I'm learning so much from you today. Yeah. We're not sacks of organs wrapped with skin. Yeah, I know. It blew my mind too mm. when I when I heard that. It really changed my perspective. We might be having multiple things going on inside of our lives. Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah, it no, turns out. Word. Yeah, it turns out that we're social beings and that ah. we're we're able to be introspective. We're able to adjust to the cultures that we're in, and we're certainly influenced by the cultures that we're in. So the traditional ways of studying health and sport kind of ignore those social aspects. They ignore that athletes aren't just running, jumping, throwing bodies, but they're actually communicating and socializing and experiencing bodies. Yeah. And that's an important distinction. And it's an obvious one. And I don't think that anybody in sports medicine or in exercise physiology would deny that. Right. They're not going to be like, well, no, literally we are just organs and skin. Right. And I mean, like they're not idiots, so. right? <laughs> yeah, right. But we have to take into consideration the role of being a social thing, right? Yeah. Being a social body. Right. Because um, if the only way that you're hearing about sports and health is, okay, I did this study and this is the reaction of the things based on the scientific method things. Right. You Like these are your lactate levels or this is your energy production or here are how your joints and muscles work together to be the most efficient athlete body that you can be. Right. Which is good to know. Sure. For sure. But I totally agree with what you're saying that there's so much more to an athlete than just their output. Right. So In these disciplines and in the research that comes out of them, and really in the everyday language that we use to talk about them, we see this machine metaphor, which is something that Abby, you and I have talked about. Yeah, I'm fascinated by this. Yeah, so we see athletes and we talk about athlete bodies as if they're machines. We say things like they ran out of fuel or they broke down. Oh, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have these linguistic ticks that we might not even realize really what we're implying, but it does rely on this metaphor, this idea that the body is just kind of made up of parts that work together. And sometimes those parts break, but we can replace those parts. And sometimes we run out of fuel, but we can refuel. Oh yeah, I gotta like refuel for the body. Right, right. And in fact, the language that nutritionists and sports nutritionists use is that food is fuel, which is not a bad thing, right? But it's, Mm -hmm. it's in line with, that metaphor that we're going to fuel the body as if the body is a machine. Right. Well, and because, and it like totally erases this aspect of food of food is to be enjoyed because Mm -hmm. we are people who are capable of enjoying what we eat Mm -hmm. and curating a diet for ourselves that brings us enjoyment beyond just, I am hungry. I feel hunger fuel up. Right. It also implies that bodies are all the same, right? Yes. And it erases gender. It erases race. It erases a lot of these important social things that then act on the body or influence the body in some way, right? And how the body's treated. So I personally, in my research, take a postmodern stance, which I'm not going to get into because even as someone who claims to be a postmodern researcher, I Google postmodernism like once a week. <laughs> it's, it's a big, huge thing that I'm not sure anybody really has a grasp on. But from that perspective, we see that bodies are different and that bodies are influenced by the social lives that we live and they're influenced by the language that we that we use. So, yeah, postmodernism, it's too big. Bottom line is that communication plays a role in how bodies are socially constructed. So when you say that communication has a role in how, you know, we think about our bodies and how our bodies are socially constructed, What does that mean? Yeah, totally. So social constructionism is this big, huge thing. But basically all I mean by that is that by talking to one another, we create shared meanings about what things are. Yeah. So a great example is the difference between biological sex and gender, right? Yes. So if we think about biological sex as being determined by the organs that you have or the sex that you were assigned at birth, We can then on the flip side, see gender as something that is instead socialized. It's Mm -hmm. something that we have assigned meaning to based on our communication, based on the norms of our culture. And we see gender reveal parties with blue balloons or pink balloons, right? So it starts even before birth. 
So that's a great example of social constructionism um, and how things are constructed socially. And bodies are constructed in the same way. So we all have ideas about what a body is, what a body should be, what an athlete body should look like or be able to do. And all of those ideas are created through communication, right? They're not, there's nothing inherent about any of those beliefs to any particular body, but we come to agree upon and understand idealized versions of bodies through communication. And then that communication doesn't have to be explicit in the case of your coach being like, you are expendable. Absolutely. But those messages can get conveyed to us from a bunch of different standpoints. You know, we have signals and gestures and written communication, Mm -hmm. nonverbal, other types of nonverbal communication, Mm -hmm. things like that. Like these messages come in all different kinds of forms, which is really cool that communication studies is able to kind of say communication happens in all of these different ways. But the message is the same in this case, that bodies are machines, they are expendable, when they break down, they will be replaced. Right. And even silence can play a role in this, right? So we think of communication as being verbal or nonverbal. We think of communication as being um, the act of sending messages or receiving messages. But the absence of those things can lead to social construction as well. So if I don't say anything when my coach tells me that my body is expendable, even as a passive receiver of that message, by not speaking up, you might say that I'm participating in the construction of that idea by not challenging that idea. And certainly there are instances where you're not in a position of power to challenge those ideas. Right. Like if you had said back to your coach, like, no, I'm not. Right. And exactly. And that's, That's another um, reason why I think it's important for us to talk about sports as kind of this bigger thing. It's not just one thing, but there's power involved. There's there are ideas that are shifting and being reinforced through all of our behavior, including our communication. That's so important, I think, to really highlight what we're talking about when we say I study communication related to sports and health. Yeah, I think that people are kind of confused about what the field of communication is, and I can't blame them, right? Right. So people ask me all the time, like, oh, so when you graduate, are you going to be a communicator? And I say, you know, that's like funny, tongue in cheek, but that's kind of the sentiment, right? People don't know what the field is, and I can't blame them. But communication is huge, right? And other fields look at communication in different contexts, But communication focuses explicitly on the communicative parts of all of these different things. So including things like health, including things like sport. Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool because that brings you over and hanging out in my discipline, sociology, Mm -hmm. with sociology of sport and things like that. Do you want to talk more about sociology of sport? Definitely. So because there isn't a lot of work being done in the field of communication in this area, I've really had to rely on sociology of sport scholars to see what work has been done. And fortunately, there's been a lot of really, really great work done on sociology of sport within sociology of sport on topics like this. Unfortunately, sociology of sport looks at communication like it's one thing. So we see things like communication played a role or even interpersonal communication played a role which is great. And of course, that's important to point out. Mm -hmm. But we know that communication is not just one thing. Right. We just listed many things that communication can be. Interpersonal communication even is not just one thing. So it'll be important, I think, moving forward to think about what types of communication are happening, how that communication is happening, and how that communication influences the types of things that we're interested in. So going kind of beyond the idea that communication plays a role and asking Mm -hmm. the how and why and what and where and who questions. Yeah. Yeah. So where else does sports communication or these issues of bodies and health show up in maybe like current events or everyday life? Sure. So as you can imagine, because sports are everywhere, sports are everywhere. We know that even if we're not particularly fans of sports, we're still exposed to a lot of the ideas that arise out of sport culture. So one of the big ones, of course, is the concussion crisis. Yes, let's talk about concussions. So I am not particularly an expert in concussion safety or the sports medicine side of concussions. But I'm definitely an expert in the social side of concussion safety 
and concussion protocol. Look at you. Flex that expertise. I don't, I'm not an expert in many things, but that is one of the things that I'm an expert in. Yes. So of course, concussions and CTE have been all over the news, all over the media for really about- CTE is, sorry. CTE is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Okay. I'm really glad that we are not (laughs) any sort of medical or health like experts in the physical science. Yeah, clearly I'm a communication scholar. Well, who who wants to learn how to pronounce those words? Not me. Well, here's here's the definition according to Google. CTE is a neurodegenerative disease caused by repeated head injuries. So, concussions. Over and over again. Over and over again. More than one. Yes. So many more than one. Yes. And so, of course, we know that football is kind of the leading sport in which... CTE is a problem. Football players experience a higher rate of concussions than athletes in other sports, as you can probably imagine. Lots of impact to the head and upper body. Right. The second leading, I don't know if you know this, the second leading sport in which concussions happen at a higher rate is women's soccer. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Probably would not have guessed women's soccer. Yeah. And I say this to people all the time when I'm talking about soccer. Men's soccer is a tactical sport and women's soccer is a tactical and physical sport. So watching, being a fan of soccer, I played soccer for 15 years. Abby and I recently watched the World Cup. It was amazing. We converted Abby into a women's national team fan. She is now their number one fan. I am. I'm out there telling everyone about I was actually just talking about women's soccer in my workplace today. Really? Yes, I Well, was. we're going to get back to women's soccer later today. Amazing. I can't wait. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, these are kind of the two sports where we see it most often, but you're liable to suffer a concussion just about anywhere, anytime, in any sport. When you, of course, sustain multiple repeated concussions, some bad things happen. Mm -hmm. We see reports of football players, particularly retired NFL players, who are now experiencing extreme health issues, uh, degenerative kind of conditions. And really, policymakers and coaches and parents and athletes have banded together, which is a great thing to try to prevent concussion in sport. So we see organizations like the NCAA coming out with some very detailed concussion protocol, Mm -hmm. coming out with very clear communication about what to do in case of a concussion, the possible side effects of concussions, etc. What's interesting, though, is if you read those protocols, If you read their action plans, there's one part that's really important that's missing. So I'm going to see, I'm going to test you, Abby. I'm going to see if you can figure it out. Okay. Let me know. So in these concussion protocols, they say things like, after the athlete has sustained a concussion, they will report that concussion. And then these are the steps to follow. What do you think is missing? Okay. So it relies on the athlete themselves to disclose that they, and oh, and so we saw this in the women's national game, Mm -hmm. right? Where like women were getting slammed around and like, oh, she's definitely concussed. She is on the ground holding her head. She is in pain. And then she's off on the sidelines and she's back in the game a little bit later. Like, yeah, this is the world cup. You think that she's going to say, I'm concussed. I should not play. That's exactly it. Because bodies are disposable. You know, bodies are disposable. And that's what I have learned. And that's the end of the podcast. Great. I'm so glad that we wrapped that up. (laughs) But no, you nailed it, right? So it relies on the athlete to disclose those symptoms. And concussions are a particularly interesting case because one of the only ways, and really the only way to diagnose a concussion is to have the athlete disclose those symptoms. That looks very different if you break your leg or something, right? Right. It, you can it, see the bones sticking out of your body. You know what? You have a compound fracture. We need to take you to the ER. Right. You cannot walk. Right. But particularly if an athlete doesn't lose consciousness, it's sometimes mm-hmm. really hard to identify when someone has sustained a concussion. Right. So the research actually does say that athletes aren't disclosing that information. Because why would they? Exactly, right? And I bring this up. it's all about like the glory. What were you saying earlier? Yes, right? We have this sentiment in sports and it comes in a variety of different ways. But one that stands out to me is pain is temporary, glory is forever. Right. And especially when you're talking about like, 
the final game or yes. this is what, you know, the coaches and all the recruiters are watching me or right. whatever it is. Right. So you put these athletes in a position where they might choose not to disclose those symptoms. And it is a disservice to athletes who are already in compromising positions. What do you mean by that? So imagine that you are a football player at an NCAA school. Okay, perfect. I can, I can definitely it. step into that yes, role very yes. easily. I did play powder puff when I was in high school. Wow, did you? Yeah, was that two-hand touch? It was two-hand touch. I tripped a girl, though. Oh, well, I mean, if they're not calling it. Right, if they're not calling it. Why aren't we doing it? Forever. Yeah. I mean, you remembered it. So. It was just like the homecoming <laughs> game, like powder puff. So mm-hmm. the boys on the side being cheerleaders. Of course. Because... You know, we because, don't cheerlead. Yeah, because sport is a gendered space and right. we have to respect the fact that there's just something inherently about women that they can't play football. Right. They can't. Right. So anyway, you're imagining that you are a football player at an NCAA school. Perfect. Let's imagine, let's take it a step further. You are on scholarship. Okay. Let's take it a step further. So it, okay, yeah. You are a black man. Okay. And you are financially dependent on your scholarship to attend college. And the scholarship is a football scholarship. Yes, it is. Okay. Let's imagine then that you sustain a concussion and you have to make a choice. You either disclose those symptoms and potentially have to sit out the rest of the game, sit out the rest of the season. And believe it or not, your scholarship might be taken from you. Why is it? That we have this system where if I sustain an injury in the thing that I, because like in a workspace, if I get hurt, I get workman's comp, right? I still get benefits. I still get, you know, a portion of my paycheck or whatever. Right. But as an athlete who's on scholarship, if I get a concussion, I'm just shit out of luck. Right. So imagine you're in this position and you have to really make a tough call, right? Do I risk losing this scholarship and therefore not completing my degree over something that, you know, I've been told my whole life is just, just a bump on the head. I'm just seeing stars. It's just a dinger or whatever, whatever euphemism we want to use for concussions. Right. That's a tough call. Which also might, you know, prohibit me from going pro. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. It might impact you financially in your future. So there are a lot of things that play into that decision that we aren't talking about and that really put athletes, particularly athletes who are already either in a minority group or who are already disadvantaged in some way in a really compromising position. Ugh, that pisses me off so much. Yes. So, well, okay. Let's think back to those action plans that I was talking about. Okay. Those, yeah. That concussion protocol. If we assume that athletes are disclosing their symptoms, which we know they're not, which we know that they're not, of course, those protocols make sense. Right. But fundamentally, there is a flaw there because we're not seeing athletes disclosing. So we're not even able to take the first step of that action plan. So it doesn't matter if athletes and coaches and trainers and parents know what to do in case of a concussion, if they don't know that a concussion was sustained. Right. So like that renders the action plan completely useless. And you would think that that would be pretty obvious, but clearly it's not. Well, and what's the incentive to change that action plan? Because like you said, it's glory is forever and pain is temporary. Right. And we see also in sport outside of kind of the policy side, when we're on the field, we have a lot of communication and behavior that suggests we shouldn't disclose, right? Like like glory is forever, pain is temporary. Exactly, exactly. Those sentiments, but also things like, aren't you a man? Oh, like real men, mm-hmm. you know, can fight through the pain or mm-hmm. whatever. Yep. Ugh. So it's all of those things together, right? And we can't pin it on just one thing. It's really the whole culture and all of the discourse, all of the communication that's happening in that space that is leading to this problem that we are facing now. And that is that we don't really know what to do. We don't know how to incentivize athletes to disclose when they've sustained a concussion. Or let's say we have an athlete who is suffering from an eating disorder. We don't know what steps we need to take to incentivize those athletes 
to disclose that information so that we can, you know, potentially offer some sources of support because we have this culture that's telling us to do the exact opposite. I think it's also important to note that we might not be able to change sports culture. Whoa, like there's a world that exists that's just, we're too far gone. Yeah. And come back from that. People ask me that in my research, like, okay, so what are you going to do? And there are certainly things that we can do, but I think the number one thing that we can do is to have conversations like these, to talk about it, to talk about the system and the way that the system fails us sometimes. It doesn't Uh mean that the system is all bad and that we need to overthrow it. It just means that there are some things that are so entrenched that the best thing we can do is raise awareness about it and make our athletes aware of the way that the system sometimes does them a disservice. Well, and I think that that's, you know, I think you're kind of posing this as this is one of the only things that we can do. It might be a small thing, but I think in a lot of ways it's a big thing because until we can see that there's a problem and we can understand what that problem is and we can see it when it shows up in our lives, Mm -hmm. we have no hope forever challenging the system, confronting the system, Mm -hmm. anything. You asked me to share some current events. Yes. I'm going to say two words. And I wish that your audience could see your face when I say these two words. Are I'm you ready. ready? Yeah. Castor Semenya. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, I'm so ready. Let's get mad. So I never imagined that I would study Castor Semenya. I didn't set out to study Castor Semenya. You know what? I am not even, I don't even claim to be a gender scholar. I don't. I am interested in health and I like to, you know, examine how gender plays a role in that because of course right. it does. Yeah. But then 2008 happened. Oh, a good year. In fact, we know a lot about pop music from that year. Oh, I know all about pop music. from. See, 2008 must have really been my year. Yeah. Because that's the year that Castor Semenya won the world championship in the 800 meter. Amazing. And that is also the year that people started questioning her biological sex and her gender. So... Castor Semenya, for anyone who is not familiar with this case. Yeah, catch us up. Yeah, Castor Semenya is a South African runner. She runs international track and field. She's a mid-distance runner. She runs the 4'8 and 1500, I believe. Mm-hmm. Or at least she did. Castor Semenya has higher levels of testosterone than what we typically see in female athletes. And why do we even know that? We know that because people started calling into question whether or not she was a man or a woman, and therefore whether or not she should be allowed to compete against other female athletes. Because she was just kicking ass on the track, and they were like, well, she's too good, so clearly she should be in the men's bracket. Absolutely. Because she's probably a man if she's just really good at sports. Right. So, yeah. So the IAAF, which is the International Association of Athletics something. Yeah. Should I look it up? No. I don't get the idea. Yeah. They started policing her body, right? So we're sex testing her. We're asking her to go through these steps that are generally reserved for people who are maybe using performance enhancing drugs, uh, people who are doping. Those type of tests are usually reserved for special cases where we're wondering whether or not an athlete is using a banned substance. Mm-hmm. In this case, though, we were sex testing Castor Semenya to see whether or not she was biologically female, even though she was born with sex organs that would be associated with a female and she identifies as a female. Right. In most any other context, it would be case closed. Nothing to see here, folks. Let's move along and have a great day. Absolutely. But like you said, Castor's out there kicking ass. She's doing great. And people start to question whether or not she should even be allowed to compete and whether or not she was a quote unquote real woman. Of course. So over the past 11 years, they have been going back and forth on whether or not Castor should be able to compete as a woman. And most recently, she had appealed the case that had banned her from competing internationally. At the last minute, that was overturned. So most recently, she is still fighting this battle. She is still being prohibited from competing because she is hyperandrogenous. So she's too good. And like the response to that is there's something biological about you that makes you too good. So you're not allowed to play. Right. And so the implication is that if you have a high enough level of testosterone, because let's get this straight. All women have testosterone. All women, I do. Yeah, I have testosterone. 
all women have varying levels of testosterone. And so do men, right? All men have differing levels of testosterone. Mm-hmm. Castor Semenya has a particularly high level of testosterone than we would see in the baseline greater population. Therefore, she is not allowed to compete against other women. And you would be surprised that men and women in an international track and field have differing opinions on whether or not she should be able to compete. I'm like not surprised by that at all because I can definitely see white women in particular being really threatened by her success and wanting to have some sort of measurable reason why like she should not be allowed to compete against and take victories away from like certain people. Absolutely. So I won't amplify the voices of those who speak out against her because I don't want to give them a bigger platform than they already have. But there are some who are already very well known, who already have a huge platform, whose voices are already being heard, who are speaking out against Castor Semenya. On the other hand, there are athletes who are in support of her. So one in particular, and someone that I really want to plug during this episode, is a sociologist. Um, She's a PhD student, and her name is Madeline Pape. She used to be an international track and field runner, and she now is getting her PhD in sociology. So she competed against Castor, and she wrote a really great article for The Guardian in May of this year, 2019, about how her perspective on the Castor Semenya ruling has changed now that she's a sociologist. Awesome. Yeah, so when she was competing against Castor, she expressed that she was frustrated, that she didn't think that someone who was a quote-unquote intersex athlete should be allowed to compete as a female. And... She now reflects on that and has changed her mind. And she's actually now advocating for other athletes who are facing discrimination in this way to um, hopefully create some policy, make some changes toward the inclusion of these athletes who are being discriminated against. That's incredible. And I'm really glad that she is able to say, you know, I have experience in kind of both arenas, right? The social and the I was actually competing against her and to right. be able to situate that conversation there. Because one of the things and I've read, you know, a couple of things about this, I actually talked to my students about this in my social problems class this past May, was that there's something particular about the spaces and identities that Castor occupies, because one of the things that an article I was reading brought up, maybe it was that Guardian piece, let me know, is that like Michael Phelps, right? Like That's exactly what I was going to say. Yes. So Michael Phelps, the thing about him, and stop me when I'm not making sense, is he's got like freakishly long arms. Yeah, he is. He's been described as like a biomedical anomaly. In a good way. In a good way. So he's being praised, right, for being biologically superior to his competitors. Right, and having a one-up. And never once was that, oh, should he be able to compete because he's just, he's got longer arms, which makes him a better swimmer. He also, his body produces less lactic acid than other bodies, like the general baseline, like we were talking about Castor, mm-hmm. his body produces less lactic acid, which helps his muscles move more efficiently. Okay, right. And so yet again, we don't hear this kind of backlash. We don't hear other, you know, swimmers being like, ah, man, like Michael Phelps, like he shouldn't be allowed to compete with us. Because okay, first of all, that I have so many thoughts on this. <laughs> it sets up this idea, right, that there's nowhere else for him to go. Like right. there's never the suggestion that he should go compete with the women athletes. Right. Because there's this hierarchy there that says Castor has to level up to compete with men because she's too good for women. Right. But a man who's too good at his sport just gets to be a winner. And guess what? What? He's a white man. Of course. And how can we forget the importance of race in these conversations? Absolutely. In fact, I put out a thread on Twitter when all of this was going down a few months ago because I was really fired up about it, clearly. Yes, always fired up about it. And somebody responded to me and they said that the fact that I was making this a race issue just proved that I was an academic elite and that I had lost touch with reality. I'm sorry, what? Anyone who pays attention to reality knows that race matters. It's huge, right? So we see this discrimination against this Black woman in ways that we clearly would not see and haven't seen against white men who are essentially experiencing the same kind of attention. Right. So anyway, that's my Castor Semenya rant. Like I said, I never intended to study Castor Semenya, but there's no way to ignore it. There's really no way that we can ignore the fact that 
institutionally she is being discriminated against because of a biological difference. And anybody who has ever played as much uh, as a kickball game on the playground, right, right, knows that sport is all about exploiting difference. It's all about exploiting difference. I was a 400 hurdler in college. I'm five foot two. I was never going to go to the NCAA finals. I just wasn't. My body isn't built for it. I don't have a biological advantage. Other athletes do. And sport is all about those differences, right? Because if everyone was the same, if it was a level playing field, we would get so bored. We would stop watching sports. We would stop playing sports. Sports would cease to exist if we weren't different bodies competing against each other, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because otherwise we would all be equally good and no one would score any points or do anything. Right. So that, of course, is ongoing. Castor Semenya. Oh, I forgot to mention something that was really important. Yes, bring it back up. That is that the IAAF introduced a rule that required athletes who did have higher levels of testosterone to take medication that would lower their level of testosterone. Oh, my God. Interestingly, or maybe not, male athletes did not have to abide by those rules. Because men are supposed to have testosterone at varying levels. And you know what else? It was only for athletes competing in the middle distances. Four, eight, and fifteen hundred. Conveniently, all of the ones that Caster Caster Semenya Semenya runs. Yes. So people who, you know, there are arguments that say it isn't targeted, right? But I call bullshit. That is so I call clearly, it that bullshit. It's so clearly a targeted act to either keep Caster Semenya out of competition or intimidate her, right? Which is not uncommon in sports or anywhere, really. Right. Well, I feel like it goes back to this initial point, right? Her body is disposable. It's replaceable. You know, she poses a threat to the way that sports are supposed to go in right. the minds of whoever, And so let's just make her change her body to be more in line with what we expect and what we want to see. And again, these are people in positions of great power. Right. Saying these things. Right. And I think that it's really important to bring in that idea of power because we can think of sport as being a site for equality, where everyone gets an opportunity to toe the line, to participate Everyone has an equal shot, right? Once you get on that line, everyone has an equal shot in that race. But that's just not true. It's important to recognize that power plays a role in sport really at any level. Right. At the policy level, at the local level, even, I mean, you think about the ability to buy in and be trained for a sport at the professional level is not accessible to just anyone, regardless of biological abilities or, you know, anything like that. Right. There's a reason why the Western world, quote unquote, dominates at the Olympics. There's a reason why our Paralympic athletes, for example, in the U.S. dominate at the Paralympic Games. And that's because power's involved, right? Money's involved. Yeah. Science is involved. So, yeah, it's really a disservice to our athletes to ignore the way that power operates in that space. Can you let us know, are there other organizations we should be aware of that are doing great work in this area? Sure. So we've already talked a little bit about the women's national team. So the women's national team, as you know, is fighting for equal pay. As well they should. As well they should. So on March 4th of this year, the team filed a lawsuit against U.S. soccer, accusing it of gender discrimination. So I want to read a little bit from this article um, that was posted by ESPN just a couple weeks ago on August 19th just so that I can get the language right, get the stats right. And I haven't heard this. This is good. Great. So the U.S. women's current lawsuit, that's the one that they filed in March, contends that if the men's and women's teams won each of the 20 non-tournament games that they're contractually required to play. So let's say both teams play all 20 games and they win all 20 games. The women's team probably would. The men's team probably wouldn't. Because let's be real, they're not doing so hot right now. No. And they're usually not doing so Yeah, we'll come back to that. Okay, so... The women's team players would each earn a maximum of 99000 That's $49.50 per game. The men's team players would earn $263,320. That's $13,166 per game, compared to the women's $4,950 per game. 
The suit also states that from 2013 to 2016, women players earned $15,000 for making the national team, and the men earned $55,000 in 2014 and $68,750 in 2018. So we can see just from the numbers alone that there is a huge gap between what the women are earning and what the men are earning. And some of the common arguments are that the men's team and most men's sports bring in more money than women's sports do. And while that may very well be true in other arenas, let's remind everyone that the women have won, what, four World Cups at this point? Right. Isn't it like all of the ones that they've been in? Essentially, almost. Yeah. The men didn't even make the World Cup last year. So we're seeing this huge disparity between both what they're making and how well they're performing. So that argument just kind of goes out the window. It doesn't make any sense. So the women's team are, again, they're in mediation talks with U.S. soccer. And the most recent update I could find is that those mediation talks broke down, that they could not reach a formal agreement. Luckily, and as they should, the men's team is standing in solidarity with the women's team. Yes, men's team. So the men's team, even though, of course, they're being advantaged by this, they are standing in solidarity saying absolutely they should get paid the same. Right. U.S. soccer um, is not being as cooperative um, with these negotiations. So that's the most recent update. But keep on cheering on that women's national team. Um, Those ladies are working hard. They really performed excellently in the Women's World Cup. So excellently. Abby and I watched the final together and it was magical. It was. I mean, it converted me to a full-on women's national fan. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, that's one organization. The other organization that I want to plug is um, coming from the Danish Institute of Sports Studies. It's their Play the Game initiative. So this initiative um, aims at raising the ethical standards of sport and promoting democracy, transparency, and freedom of expression in world sport. So um, they're actually putting on, they put on an interdisciplinary conference every year. It's international. And this isn't just academics. These are journalists. These are lawyers. These are athletes themselves, coaches, medical professionals, and students like me um, coming together to talk about sports ethics and how we can better the culture of sport together and also promote democracy, freedom of expression, et cetera. That's so cool that there's this organization that already exists that we can just like get involved with or know more about or plug that's doing exactly what we want to have happen. Exactly. And the conference this year is in Colorado Springs Ooh, in October. Beautiful. And I'll be presenting my research there. Madeline Pape, who we've already talked about, the sociologist who competed against Castor, is also presenting at the conference. And my fingers are crossed that we're on the same panel. So I'll keep you updated. Wouldn't that be amazing? It would be amazing. I'd be fangirling. Uh, I would embarrass myself. Well, as well, you should. Yeah, she's amazing. No, there's no shame in that. So those are the two organizations that I want to plug. But really just all of us can play a role in both raising awareness and just putting these kind of taken for granted norms, just problematizing them, right? So thinking about how they might not be serving us, but rather they might be working against us. Sports are huge. I hesitate to even say that we can change the whole culture, right? We can't solve every problem, but we can talk about the problems. So that's what I hope to continue to do. Yes. And I'm so glad you're here using this space to talk about those problems. Yeah. And we're going to kind of take a break from that conversation. And when we come back, We're going to talk about things that are rad. And we're back with That's Rad. So I'm going to go first. and I'm so excited. Yes. Okay. So my first thing that I want to plug that is rad is following Lizzo on Instagram. Oh, yes. Okay. I'm obsessed with Lizzo. Her music. You have Lizzo fever? I do. I do. Mm -hmm. And I know like the nation does. So this is not, you know... Rare find Lizzo. No, (laughs) everyone knows about Lizzo. We all love Lizzo, Mm -hmm. but follow her on Instagram because I promise you, you will not regret it. She plays the jazz flute. Did you know that? Yes. Okay. Because she's like a, like a classically trained flautist. Yes. And that's, you know, where her roots are. And then 
she she did this cover she posted the other day of her doing what is it Empire State of Mind it sure is. on the flute mm-hmm. and it's amazing and mm-hmm. it's like throwback to 2010 Lizzo mm-hmm. it's awesome she also did this thing on her heartthrob pop anthem okay. Truth Hurts okay uh-huh. everyone's favorite line which was like you could have had a bad bitch non-committal exactly you would do Korea just a little <laughs> but she um she posted these like memes of people being like you could have had a bad bitch and then it's like a bunch of things you can oh my through. gosh so I saw like, this yes, yes you could have had a bad bitch Stuart Little yes I saw Sour this Skittles. it was, and I was so good losing it losing it losing it and she also is just such a good site for body positivity mm-hmm. and talking about you know self-love and being in a space where you know if no one else will love me I'm gonna love me yeah and being like I'm not asking for you to love me because I love myself so right. much and I think that that's such a powerful message and I think it mm-hmm. pairs really well with what we're talking about today yeah yes. this idea that like bodies are not disposable bodies are where people are. Yes, and bodies aren't just bodies. Bodies are attached to the soul and the being and the brain and the heart and the emotions. And like we've already stated, bodies are not just stacks of organs encompassed by skin, as much as some people would like to believe that. Right. And in the case of Lizzo, she just manages to be all of that at the same time so much better than the average human being. Yes, the thing that I love, and you kind of already said this, but... So we have this kind of like common phrase. It's like, if you can't love yourself, how are you gonna love someone else? Right. And she takes that and flips it on his head and says, if you can love me in my big black body, you can love you. And I love that, right? She's like, if you can love me, you can love yourself, bitch. And I'm like, yes, my queen. I love her. Right. And her music is just so good. Like whenever you just need to feel good as hell, Hell yeah, you know. We all deserve to feel good as hell. Right, and that's one of her quotes. Yeah, too, the most yes. recent, uh, what was the, the VMAs? VMAs. Mm-hmm. Her performance there, which was stellar. I did not watch the VMAs, but I did watch her performance. Right, and <laughs> because the, how was I not gonna, gonna watch, watch Lizzo? That. We yeah. love Lizzo. Okay. We love Lizzo. Follow her on Instagram. It's amazing, and honestly, I love scrolling on Instagram and then getting to one of her posts, and I'm like, I don't even need to know. I'm just gonna double tap, like it. And then read what it's about. Absolutely. That's just what is happening. Her Instagram stories are gold. They are. They're so funny they're and amazing. fun. Yeah. I was spreading a rumor by accident that Idris Elba was her father. I don't know where I heard that. I don't know where I heard that. And then I heard it and then I told fucking everyone because I was like, oh my God. Right. And then it turns out that it's not true, I think. Surprise. And so then my boyfriend, Eric, friend of the podcast, was like upset because he's like I've been telling everyone that I'm like I'm so sorry I'm spreading I'm spreading lies lies. and I I swear I heard that somewhere and I don't think it's true so if I told you that Idris Elba was Lizzo's dad I apologize I apologize for (laughs) the errors of my friend yeah I made a mistake most everything she says is credible in fact the only thing that's not credible is that is that that that's true that that's true yeah Yeah, Yeah. because it's not true yeah so I, I have something that's rad. Can I can I tell my rad thing? Yes, tell me okay. what's rad. Okay, so this is a podcast that I found that I have introduced to Abby, and I think that she also loves it. This podcast is called Nicole's Grey's Anatomy, and Nicole Silverberg, yes. I almost forgot her name, is a TV writer. She has this podcast on Forever Dog Podcast, and it is all about Grey's Anatomy, and literally, all they talk about is Grey's Anatomy. It's not a recap show, but instead she has guests on and they talk about whatever the guest wants to talk about. So whether that's a character, whether that's some sort of arc in the story, whether that is one of them was like, tell us your favorite gruesome episode or something like that. Right. Yeah. Anyway, one was about boning. Anyway, it's There's so a lot good. Of it's so, so good. And I don't know if you know this. Well, Abby knows, listeners, I'm cog. I'm also Cog. I'm Kern on Grey's. Yeah. I've watched every season. And there I don't think there are very many people who can say that. I've watched every episode of Grey's Anatomy. Here's my thing, is that I didn't start watching Grey's. So in case you're wondering about my own Grey's journey. <laughs> yeah, what is your Grey's journey? Which is how every episode. That's how Nicole starts. starts. Yeah. yeah. I didn't start watching Grey's Anatomy until I was in college because my roommate and also best friend Hannah was trying to convince me to watch it for years and Mm -hmm. I was like no what are you talking about no I binged watched my senior year of college 
the first 12 seasons on oh Netflix. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Congratulations. And since then, I have been current on Grace. Well, here's my Grace journey, which yeah, I don't think you know. know. Yeah. I didn't start until after college. What? Yeah, so I graduated in December of 2014. Okay. And I had a semester off before I started my master's degree. And during that semester off and the following summer, I binged, yeah, like the first 14 seasons. I was watching like six hours of Grey's Anatomy every day because I, I had a part-time job. I worked at the bar. I was like, I have all day to watch Grey's Anatomy. And that's exactly what I did. How have we never talked about I don't the know. fact that our Grey's journey is so similar because I don't it involves know. us backloading our Grey's journey? I think I was just like really depressed. Honestly, <laughs> me too. Yeah, senior year of college and yeah, really yeah, depressed. Yeah, I was spiraling. So I needed, I really, yeah, I was, I was sulking for sure. But I did love watching Grey's Anatomy. It was great. And I continue to love watching Grey's Anatomy. I'm so excited the next season comes out in September. Yes. And for those of you who are skeptical, it got really bad for a while, but it has, I think, gotten better. What do you think, Abby? I think it definitely has redeemable storylines and plot points. Like, I mean, it's really hard to keep me coming back to things. I'm very quick to be like, and I'm done with this, I'm moving on. There's so much content to consume. It's like, yes. I don't have time for all of it, but I will always have time for Grey's Anatomy. Agreed. What's your next rad thing? Okay, my next rad thing is as we know, lots of states in the South are trying to pass all of these abortion bans that mm -hmm. are just crazy restrictive and terrible. My home state is one of the worst, worst perpetrators of this. Yes. I won't speak the name. We mustn't. <laughs> we can't. <laughs> I'm so sorry I interrupted you. <laughs> no, it's okay. Go but, on. Yes, I will tell you more about this now. <laughs> is that, so in response to this climate that we're in right now mm -hmm. with the abortion bans coming out and upper level courts trying to figure out, are we gonna let this fly or not? Nah? Mm -hmm. What's going on? Planned Parenthood has come back and has created this like movement around hashtag bans off my body. And so what I wanna say to you is that we have over what, 140 artists and counting who have joined in and are publicly saying, I am part of this movement. I support what Planned Parenthood is doing. I hate the abortion bans and we are going to figure this out. And so what I really like about it is, first of all, it gives me a list of all the artists I can keep listening to. The artists that are not canceled. Right, yeah. exactly. Including Justin Vernon from Bon Iver, right? Yes, Bon Iver oh, is on the list. That's my boy. So don't worry, you can still listen to Bon Iver. Oh, hell yeah. Betty Who's on there. Oh. Um, Dua Lipa's on there. I mean, of course. Right. Like, did you expect anything Absolutely less? not. Um, Lizzo, of course, of is course. on there. Our girl. You know, and I just think that it's a really cool idea of getting, you know, different artists involved in this movement who are willing to take up this platform and saying, this is a problem. We're going to say something about it. And then that's going to create this, this culture of awareness around this issue and conversation around it. Mm -hmm. And again, it just like warms my heart to know that there are so many artists out there who are like, hell yeah, I'll stand up and say that this is not okay. Bands off my body. Right. Yeah. Even in pe with people like Bonnie Bear who like aren't directly affected by this issue, but are at the same time. Absolutely. And that brings us back to really the power of communication. What? Wow. Full circle. We're back there already. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, why not use their platforms to promote this? And Sometimes we hear people saying like, oh, well, for example, Justin Vernon is a white man. Like, it's not his place to speak up for those who don't have a voice. And it's like, hell yeah, it is. Right. Use that voice. Right. Use that platform, bitch. Like, right. Like, if you're echoing the voices of, of women who are saying, and not just women, but also like trans folks. Exactly. Who are saying things like, this needs to stop. And you're elevating those voices. Go for it. Yes, like certainly don't talk over the voices of those who are doing the labor. Right. But for God's sakes, like use your voice if you can when right. you care about something like that and give credit where credit is due. Absolutely. And, oh, I stand. Yes. So that's my thing that's rad. That's excellent. Give me your last thing that's rad. Okay, so Abby, I told you I was going to talk about Grapes of Wrath, but yeah. I've actually changed my mind. So we'll talk about Grapes of Wrath next time yeah. I'm on the pod. Um, because that's a whole thing that I'm going through right now. It's really transformative. But the thing that I actually want to talk about yeah, is another podcast. Because yes. I've been 
I was very anti-podcast for a while. Um, We've like, all been there. Because I was like, ah, oh, it's like an audio book. Like, I'm going to get bored. Anyway, I, I have... Oh, well, I apologize. I didn't mean to offend <laughs> any of you audiobook yeah. listeners out there. Please. Don't, please don't leave. Yeah, just, just don't listen to me. But I found another podcast that is brand new that I am loving. It's called Too Scary Didn't Watch. And it's a podcast... Oh, you told me about yes, this. Yes, it's okay. a podcast about scary movies. But what they do is it's it's... I think it's three women and their sound engineer is also a woman. So it's four women and they bring in guests sometimes. Sometimes it's just them. And one of them will watch the scary movie and then recap it to the others who were too scared to watch. So the first episode was Midsummer, which was amazing. Abby, you haven't seen it, right? I don't watch scary movies because yeah, that's what I, I am too susceptible and too scared. So maybe this is a podcast for you. I don't know because I did have <laughs> nightmares for multiple nights when my friend in high school explained to me just just like in words, like the plot of insidious oh mm -hmm. so just yep. you know it's so it's very possible that just by listening to one of these episodes right i will have nightmares for sure. many many moons yes well it's an excellent podcast highly recommend it go subscribe rate them on itunes or on itunes now because let's be honest abby i only spend time with you and kelsey and friend of the podcast eric and none of you guys really like scary movies. Right. So I have to true. get my I have to get my scary movie fixed somewhere. So exactly. it, it makes me feel like I'm sitting down and like decompressing after seeing a scary movie with my friends, but yeah. they're just strangers on the internet. So anyway, Which, like, what better friends are they? Yes, highly recommend. The highly recommend. They did a midsummer episode. They did a The Witch episode, which is my favorite movie ever. What? And most recently they did The Evil Dead, which I've never seen, but the episode was still great. And you don't have to have seen it to know about because it. Because that's the whole point. It's yes. a recap. And I feel like it sets you up for like, I'm not going to watch this. Exactly. And they have a cocktail of the week. Oh, if you're interested. Yes. <laughs> I love this. Elle Rochford, this is a podcast for you. Yes. Friend of the podcast, Elle. Oh, that, I'm going to bring this full circle. How's yes, that? Do it. The other way that Abby and I became friends is because after I creepily added Abby on Facebook, I realized that she was friends with friend of the podcast, Elle Rochford, who I had also had a class with, and I had also really admired her work. So shout outs to Elle. Love she her. also helped us come to where we are today. Yes. Yeah. Couldn't have done this without her. <laughs> well, Carissa, thank you so much for being on the thank podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Can you let our listeners know where they can get more of you because they just want to consume more of your content sure so you can follow me on twitter, Love a twitter. i'm at, at carissa m conrad that yes. is k-a-r-i-s-s-a m as in marie conrad. As in your middle name oh my middle name is actually not marie it's michelle well there's that <laughs> learned something new about you conrad you can follow me there i tweet mostly about school and about random things that i see on the bus and that's really it. I'm just on Twitter. I'm just on Twitter. I'm, I'm you know, I'm all over the internet. I'm, I'm in your heart. Right. Follow me there. Follow me there <laughs> in your heart. <laughs> Love will find a way. Love will find a way. That's my shout out to the Lion King. Well, Abby, thank you so much for having me. I really yes. appreciate it. You're wonderful. The other thing I want to plug is Abby's podcast. Uh, well, that's a problem. Thank you so much for that shout out to the people who are already listening to the podcast. <laughs> You're so welcome. I love it so much. <laughs> That's our show today, and we will see you next time. Bye! Bye!